And you have officially stepped onto the terrain of the Redemption Podcast if you are seeking the 21st century messianic experience of your dreams. You have come to the right place. This is the Little Green Christ of Ypsilanti Podcast radio show. Okay, but like on the culty note, I've been watching season two of the Nexium show. It's nuts the uggos that women will fall in love with bananas this cult leader is the shrimpiest little dweeb i've ever seen and there's like he's juggling like 20 girlfriends and they're all in love with him and they all want to have his babies and it's so insane because he only ever wants to play volleyball and walks around in a sweatband with his uggo ponytail and I'm sorry, but I don't understand Christ-like figures. Is this the one that branded people? Yes, yes. And and the brand is his initials because he's such a little weenie. It's like wow. he want right? Like it's, it's the most uncool cult you've ever seen in your life. And I don't get it. I would fully understand it if these guys were like hot and charismatic. And it was like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, I would throw myself in front of a train for that babe. This is not the case. And I don't understand. I think I'm too shallow to be in a cult. I think this is what I'm learning about <laughs> myself in real time. This is the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station or podcast app. Find us on the Harbinger Media Network. And we are slipping, sliding down the... Um, <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just going to light my massive yellow penis candle in preparation for this seance. I don't think we can reference genitalia on air. I don't know if that's allowed. Stefan. And is it just you interviewing? Is it Stefan or is it Lauren too? It's both of us. Both of us. Lauren Elizabeth Corlator, Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter, are interviewing Sarah Adams today of The Hub. It's the Climate Justice Organizing Hub out of Montreal. And so we talk a little bit about what they do, what the supports they provide, and a little bit about their experience of trying to support grassroots organizing in the last three years since they opened. Yeah, they're a great organization. They do cool work. They exist to support grassroots climate um, organizations and spaces and movements across so-called Canada. Cool people doing cool stuff. And we got to hear all about it. We are going to get to that great interview. After Stefan's stops staring at the tendril of pothos vine that is uh, tickling his large forehead as we speak, would you like me to tuck that tuck that away for you? For listeners who obviously can't see what's happening, there is uh, we record with a whole jungle of vine above our heads, and one of them just kept hitting me in the head. So yeah, Loki, you record from what looks like a room in the Jumanji house. <clears throat> you will get to hear the dying gasps of Mr. Stefan Hostetter as he gets choked out by my beautifully cultivated vine in just a few minutes. But we're going to do a little bit of climate news here, some scientific studies. Are we ready for that? Or, or oh wait, Stefan wanted to mention the Alberta podcast, for, uh, the Alberta election. Sorry, the, yeah. the pod, the Alberta podcast election. They elected the best podcasters in Alberta. I mean, um, first, though, if you. We're interested in how our May 18th tune-in event went. Uh, those who didn't come, all of our listeners, that is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you can go to our website to check out some pictures and, and stuff, or you can check out our Instagram, Green Majority. So check that out. Yeah, and I'll say listeners did attend. And thank you for the listeners who did attend. Okay. 
because they would have heard that and then you would have they would have felt bad. Um, but no, we do need to briefly at least acknowledge the fact that the Alberta election did occur and they did elect, you know, I believe she was a podcaster. I think uh, I think that's the the head of the UCP. Um Oh my God, that means there's hope for us and yeah, our we political could, careers. Yeah, we could become the premier of Alberta if only we podcast hard enough. Uh, the UCP won with 49 seats out of uh, to 38. And despite some news you will read about how only a couple thousand votes would have switched the election, which is true, the... In Calgary, there were enough close races that had they all gone the other direction, there would have been enough to have an NDP government. That sort of obscures the fact that the UCP won by like 8%. They had over 50% of the vote, that it was not really that close in a population-wide scale. And the only thing I can say about this, which is nothing new, is just I would like... If we're going to lose, and we're going to lose a lot, but if we're going to lose, I would like to at least lose in a different way. You know, the Ontario NDP, the federal NDP, the Saskatchewan NDP have all decided that they want to lose by constantly tilting towards the center and trying to pretend, or not even pretend, by, by being and pitching themselves as a more centrist party. And at least I would like to lose you know, gunning for a world I could be happy and excited to live in and not a world that has slightly higher, you know, corporate tax rates, but but being pitched uh, as a zero small business tax. Like, can we at least give people a vision while we lose instead of just losing while capitulating to the machine that is destroying everything? You know, like... I read Just that the, lose I read more that the NDP had an Airbnb lobbyist as one of their main. He was the campaign. head of their campaign. Okay, there it is. It's one hundred percent like absolutely yes in agreement, and and I even heard some some various sort of people with with a much better understanding of Albertan politics and dynamics, like referencing that a couple of weeks ago, being like the 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 NDP, the the closest thing to a left party that exists in Alberta, isn't giving anybody anything to rally around. And I think that's the thing. It's like it would be one thing if we lost while throwing our weight behind audacious candidates and exciting parties who were out there with wild solutions. Um, because the thing is, what the right has shown us and what the UCP has demonstrated in winning this election is that being out there doesn't lose you votes, right? And like, I'm not, I'm not saying that like the way the left is out there is the same way the way is, the right is out there because I, I actually do not believe <laughs> that's an equivalency that can be made. And centrists that try to argue it's the same is like that's a false equivalency. But like, the UCP has been out to frickin' lunch for years now. Danielle Smith is out there saying like fascist nonsense all the time on the radio on tv on i'm sure if we went back in the archives of whatever her podcast is and and yet the left and actors on the left at least within like sort of the political left quote unquote the center left are so afraid of of audacity that that that's the only word that's coming to mind are afraid of those kind of audacious statements and policies that are going to really separate them and really put them apart and really 
I, I don't know, define them. And it just doesn't, it's it's an approach that that in no way makes sense to me because it's the the right has shown that being out there is a winning strategy. Yeah. And and the the insurgent right, like the right of the right of the UCP has shown that they have been able to basically not only take over the UCP, you know, uh, with with Danielle Smith, but also then have a lot of their chosen people be now MPs. So like they are like, it's not just that this is the the sort of generic, you know, right wing that is managing power. The really, really right wing has successfully done this. And that's a thing that the NDP and the left seem to be very, very happy with trying to tamp down, right? Like in the way that the very, very radical right seems to have successfully and in use the party apparatus to to bring themselves into the power, the the left seems much more focused on keeping those people as far away from, uh, you know, keeping the the people who would put forward strong, bold visions as far away from power as it possibly can. You know, so you saw this with the with the BC uh, NDP and uh, and Jolly who who made a, a, a actually interesting case, you know, uh, for a different way of leadership, and that it was like it was trying to. In you know, it was like it was like they were trying to reject it as much as possible, and so like you have to have to have to build from your base, and you can't just presume you can just be the other people, you know. And that's what it seems like. The that's the seems to be the mo right now of most other parties, you know, like or most left parties right now. They're trying to be like the oh, we're not Pierre Polyev, or we're not Doug Ford, or we're not Danielle Smith. And that's not an argument. Well, isn't it similar to why the Democrats can't truly be left-wing in the United States? They're they're part of a like political political system that's connected with the economic interests that are necessarily right-wing because they want to keep what's going on happening. So it's like there's no way for them that the, them apparently they don't seem to be able to conceive of a, of, a, of a rationale even for going for becoming left-wing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, again, I would just, I just like to lose more interestingly. I think that's just where I'm at, you know. But like, but, but the interesting people that you're talking about are losing within their own parties. Like like Anjali, you were talking about BC. I, I she mean, lost within her own party. She didn't lose. They were they literally they, they didn't were, let her even well, run. Exactly, exactly. But that's not losing. So like that well, that's I mean, the thing. Running. It's like that's what we're saying is it's like I I need I need the NDP to learn from this experience, and we have. People are guessing. Nothing's been called, obviously. But the understanding, the estimate is that we have about a year, maybe a year and a few months until the next federal election, until we actually have to make sure Polyev doesn't get in. And it's like, I need the NDP to learn from this experience. I need them to to come out with something a little more exciting, to come out with something a little more, I don't know, bombastic and inspiring to get people going and to get people out and to get people in the streets and to get people, I don't know, volunteering for various parties and stuff, because I understand, yes, the NDP aren't going to likely form government in 2024, but if they're at least out there getting people excited, I don't know. It's one less vote going towards Polyev's party. I'm bummed, you guys. I'm annoyed. Sorry, right. right. we're gonna we're gonna get to. I mean, there's a there's a few good pieces of news in this article actually, and I have one 
bonus piece of good news, which I'll add as we go through the news. Miracles happen every day. There on the sidewalk, the flower makes its way into the crack and the light of day. We're going to go for a short music break and come back with some climate news here on The Green Majority. to the Green Majority, and we are going to do some climate news before getting to Stefan and Lauren's interview with Sarah Adams, director of Le Hub. Anglophone coordinator. New research from the World Meteorological Association predicts that we will breach 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2027. Uh, Greenhouse gases have now been confirmed to be cooling the higher regions of the atmosphere. This could affect satellites, ozone, and the weather. And David, Antion, David Antonioli, the CEO of Vera, which is the world's largest carbon credit certifier, uh, is stepping down. And this is coming after it was found that Vera had certified tens of millions of worthless credits and so has been facilitating major corporate greenwashing. Yeah, so very quickly... I think the third story here about the CEO of Vera in some ways explains the first of how we're going to blow past 1.5 even before 2030. You know, the, 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 the reason that we're on pace to do that is because of a refusal to do what is necessary to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And instead, we continue to rely on these market mechanisms uh, in other schemes. Now, that said, though, I don't want people to take the idea that we're passing 1.5 as a reason to just give up because i think it like every time it's an interesting play that climate activists end up doing where we have to very much clearly demonstrate the importance of things like holding us to 1.5 without then being like we should give up if we don't if we don't get there like it's sort of a hard thing to be like it's really important but then also keep fighting. And I think the key, the thing that I come back to is just this idea that I think came from an Extinction Rebellion uh, speaker at one point that I heard, which was basically that like every point of a degree is million, is, is lives that you can save. So like it all matters, even if it's past that number. And so that's why I sort of hold on to this news. But Lauren? Yes, we are going over 1.5. That has been assumed to be the case for a while now, but that doesn't mean that we will be over 1.5 forever. And it doesn't mean that just because we're going over 1.5 that we can just like throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. Um, The idea is that, okay, cool, we're going to go over 1.5. And now we have to work like hell to make sure we go back down below 1.5, because that can happen. 
Yeah, for sure. The, the 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 phrase that is used oftentimes and you'll see in like IPCC reports is like in an ideal world, yes, we would avoid 1.5 with overshoot, but we are not avoiding 1.5 with overshoot. What we are doing is we are overshooting 1.5 and now we have to work hard to get back down below 1.5 as fast as possible. A new study published by One Earth concludes that the 21 most polluting corporations in the world owe at least $209 billion annually in reparations to frontline communities. Vietnam recorded its highest ever temperature last month of 44.1 degrees Celsius. Deforestation in the Amazon is continuing to lessen under Brazilian President Lula da Silva. April deforestation numbers are 68% lower than they were last year, 40% lower on the year. Um, A recent study published in Earth's Future has found that New York City's massive skyscrapers are sinking it, leaving it even more vulnerable to sea level rise. Major wildfires hitting Nova Scotia and threatening Halifax are expected to worsen. And on uh, Doug Ford's Ontario is going against the wishes of cities and moving ahead with gas plant expansions in Toronto, Halton Hills, Brampton, and Thorold. Yeah, so this is where I'm going to pop in the one piece of good news, though the segue into it is that last piece of news that somehow we are still building gas plants and expanding gas plants when we are in a climate emergency. But the piece of good news is that we're doing that at the same time that China is likely hitting peak emissions. It's expected that 2023 might actually, should actually be the peak emissions that China will have, and we should expect it to see them decrease from here on out due to expanded solar and EV vehicle sales. And that's seven years earlier than intent than expected. That twenty thirty was sort of the was sort of the threshold for when people are hoping for. And so the fact that it's happening so much earlier, while still we decide that we need to build gas plants, I mean, we know why Doug Ford put us into the situation when he canceled all the renewable energy at, at all the renewable energy that was built in twenty eighteen. But we're just being going to be left behind, you know, like there's no other way of understanding this, that like if we're not building the infrastructure for the future, we are just going to find ourselves left behind and trying to find new ways to capture these emissions. And to go back to Lauren's point previous about overshoot, this is what makes the overshoot harder, right? Is that we are instead of building new technology now that would allow us to keep emissions low, we are actually blocking ourselves even to more and more emissions and that's just distressing, especially given the you know the fact that we now apparently have wildfires on both sides of this country before June, which is not great. And I'm going to move on to more news here. Bay du Nord, which would be Canada's first deep water oil project off the coast of Newfoundland, has been put on hold for three years by its Norwegian developer Equinor because they're not sure if they will be able to turn a profit off of the project. Scientists in Sweden have discovered a microbe that can digest certain plastics at 15 degrees Celsius, which will make it much easier to use them in recycling or reprocessing plastics. The microbes have not had enough time to evolve into this role, uh, but they can do it because some plastics have structures similar to plant cells. 
And finally, Q-Cells, which is a huge solar panel manufacturer, is now working on a new semiconductor material that could potentially increase the efficiency of solar cells by 50 to 75%. So this, this is a miraculous technological development sure to reign in the new age of the green Christ. And do you think the... The fifty-seven percent—that's interesting because the expenses have gone down so much, but the efficiency improvements actually likely means you get more per space, which I think actually could be a some of a game changer, right? Like it's—it's it's one thing to have it just be so cheap because right now it's cheaper than even new coal, but it's another thing to be able to get almost twice as much or more than twice as much of energy from the same amount of actual physical space. That sort of changes the ability for you know rooftop solar and some other stuff to be viable. Yeah, that's literally what I was thinking of was was the viability of rooftop solar in like dense urban areas um, where you would need a a heck ton of solar panels to to power an apartment building, for instance, um, in 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 an urban location. Um, but no, the story I wanted to circle back to um, because we we record on Wednesdays, um, and that's when this story came out today was was Wednesday, May thirty first. Um, is about uh, about Bay de Nord and finding out that it's been shelved for three years. And no, this doesn't mean the project is dead fully. Um, uh, it means that like organizers are gonna organizers are gonna have to continue to to uh, foster and nurture resistance against the project in Newfoundland. But what I do think is interesting interesting is that from my understanding, um, Equinor, the Norwegian based company that was that was going to be behind Bajenord, they didn't have to give a final financial decision until next year, until next summer. Um, so the fact that they're they're kind of like extending their own deadline by a couple of years, I think, like, I, I, again, we, we know this doesn't bode well for the project, but it really doesn't bode well for the project. And this is citing market reasons for, for pulling out is the same thing that got us out of Energy East. It's the same thing that I believe got us out of Tech Frontier. Um, it's this, this is, we're seeing a pattern over and over again, that this is the reason that is cited um, by, by all of these oil and gas companies. And what is really, I, I hate to use words like great, because and anyway, what is kind of great and kind of funny about this is that a couple days ago, um, there was uh, an I think it was called like Energy NL or like a, a big a big conference in Newfoundland where the Atlantic director of um, CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, was quoted um, in reference to Bajenord. And what he was sort of saying um, is that like Bajenord is like a bit of a harbinger if I can use that, um, for, for what offshore, uh, drilling is going to be like on the East coast in general. Um, what he says, the quote here is there's a lot, this is, oh, sorry. It's, it's a, this quote's messed up. Um, He's quoted as saying, there really is a lot riding on Equinor, a lot riding on the exploration programs that are taking place this summer. Um, and then it goes on to, to cite other projects that he's looking at. And basically, yeah, what he was saying there, um, to sort of reiterate it is that like what happens with Equinor to a degree dictates what is going to happen with other projects down the road. So the fact that we're getting a bit of a premature death now for Beta Nord, I, I think it it stands to reason and we can extrapolate out from that using, I don't know, Cap's own reasoning and own rationale that um that uh, a future for offshore oil and gas drilling in um so-called Canada isn't isn't looking too good, which is kind of great. Um what I think 
potentially bodes well for folks in Newfoundland who are excited to have a conversation about energy jobs in Newfoundland is that um, companies like Equinor do invest in a lot of offshore wind um, energy and offshore green energy. So like for folks who might be maligning the loss of Beta Nord, I think what this means is that it's it's time for us to start having a conversation about what it looks like to have international investment in in green energy in 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 these places um so yeah good stuff not everything's bad all the time <laughs> that's our big takeaway and we will now take another music break and come back with Stefan and Lauren interviewing Sarah Adams about all the work that the hub does what is the full what's the full title there? the climate justice organizing hub climate justice organizing love it stay tuned Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, which we found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. If you haven't checked them out, do so. There are some great shows over there, as previewed earlier on the show. I, Stephen Hostetter, am here with Lauren Latour, and we are interviewing Sarah Adams, the Anglophone coordinator of the hub or le hub if my french is terrible but that's roughly right right that you sounded parisian for a second there the way you (laughs) the way you you pronounce that h stunning i'm sweating yeah hot yeah that's all i've got so please don't make me say any more french i stopped taking it in grade 10 which is honestly a bit of a regret on my part but anyways thank you so much for being here sarah Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk to you guys more about movements and what's happening in the climate justice scene in Canada. So fun. Yeah. So by way of introduction, can you just let our listeners know what The Hub does? Yeah, totally. So The Hub, so the Climate Justice Organizing Hub is our big name, is like a movement support structure in sort of 
you know, in big words, I guess, but like we're really a helpline for organizers on the ground, grassroots activists who are trying to find their way towards the levers of power in Canada to changing climate policy to include a just transition off fossil fuels that have equity measures in place. So that can mean many things. And we as a support structure are that we are there to support. It is not a down like a um, a top down sort of situation. And would love to talk to you more about that. We really take our lead from organizers directly. We consult them directly and then build out programming that they request, that they identify as their own needs. So respecting their own knowledge and expertise on what is happening on the ground and where we can help fill in the gaps. And so we're kind of this resource system that sort of is very attentive to the needs of organizers on the ground. Excellent summary. So something that I know about the hub or, yeah, the hub, is that some of your colleagues are specifically like their titles include the word librarian. And I think that's such a cool concept. Can you tell us a little bit about your librarians, sort of the role they play, not just in your organization, but but in the broader grassroots movement in so-called Canada? And and if you can, if you're if you're able to dig into it at all, what were the indicators that have sort of signaled to the hub that there's a that there's a need for positions like this, these these librarians? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so we have two wonderful librarians at the moment at the Hub. We've got sort of one who who deals with sort of Francophone Canada and one with Anglophone Canada generally, but they are very dynamic in their roles. And so we sort of see them as kind of like the heart of the Hub. They are two folks, Isabel Hernandez and then also Mackenzie Harris, who are very much in the like at the very like root of different mobilizations for climate justice. So they are very much on the ground in and embedded, that's the word, they're embedded in their own sort of climate justice circles and networks and are kind of our ears on the ground also, to mix metaphors. They're our heart and our ears. They are there to directly liaise with grassroots organizers and in the Francophone and Anglophone movements, respectively, to, again, like just sort of act as that first sort of line of response to needs on the, on the ground of organizers. So they're going to you know, general meetings, they're going to all kinds of protests and hearing and and reporting back and having also formal consultations with organizers. And and then it's so sort of like liaising with organizers directly and then building out what we have at the hub called our wiki. And it is a repository, an archive of kind of constant, like where we're adding lots and lots of articles and resources, slideshows, about best practices for organizers based on questions we get directly from organizers. So how do I organize in a pandemic was when we got so much when we first started, which was just, you know, we just celebrated our third birthday. So it start, we started during COVID right at the very beginning. And so we were very much a rapid response team in that moment. I wasn't a part of the team then, but they were at the heart of our rapid response, hearing what was needed and then building these relationships of trust, which is integral to all of this. And then building out these articles, these resources that directly addressed and compiled other resources from elsewhere for these activists. Wow. And if they said for your, oh, sorry, your second question. No, I was just, they must be wildly busy. Oh my goodness. That's, that's, yeah. that's so much for them to do. Totally. Anything yeah. like that. So, so, so their job is to not only communicate with, with grassroots movements and spaces and collate those needs, but, and like harvest that information, I guess, but then to also like, in turn, produce the content to, to totally. meet those needs. Oh my goodness! And we've yeah, exactly. And so we've we've 
put the balance more onto the shoulders as things have gone on onto the coordinators to help with those like formal needs assessments where we, you know, we, we create lists of, of priority kind of groups or like climate just active groups that we want to get in touch with and understand, you know, in the movement ecosystem, who's doing, you know, what and what is what are their needs? And and then, yes, yeah, sort of finding the sort of workflow and pipeline of sorry, I don't want to use pipeline and fossil fuel language, but like finding this like flow where we support them with creating those resources, but they are a part of that process as well. Yeah. Awesome. So I have a slight follow-up to that question, mostly from a history perspective, which was, did the hub come out because of COVID or did it happen? Were you about to launch and then COVID happened? Right. So the former. So it was in the works for a while and then the launch was slated for spring 2020. And that's that's just what happened. Yes. Right. Fair. Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious. But then what was cool about it was that as a needs response, as a structure supporting grassroots movements, that was a huge and dire time of need for people in all kinds of ways and all these interlocking crises. And then one part of it is like, how do we mobilize in these conditions? How do we build power? What does it look like when we can't gather, when we can't do all the things that we've been told and historically have worked or that we've tried and that we're learning from other movements in this completely new paradigm? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And then just to get a sense of, of your own experience through this, how did you get involved into climate action and then, and then join the hub? Yeah. So I, I was really mobilized before sort of leading up to 2019. I think I was keeping sort of abreast of things that were happening in environmental justice and doing sort of, you know, being the person who kind of went from event to event, but not really being behind, like trying to put things on or sort of being in, in the movement itself. And then with 2019 was really radicalized to just sort of to realize my power and my place and privilege in this movement, what I could do with those things to continue the momentum to keep building. And so that was such a powerful moment, um, kind of in the wake of our time and and the and then the federal election and then moving into the marches of, of fall 2019. That was kind of the moment where I was, yeah, really activated, felt like I could dig in deeper and, and could add much more in, instead of just coming out, realizing sort of the, the muted potential of just going from event to event and not really thinking about more, you know, strategically about how do we build power? How do we actually move these these levers? Love that. Thanks for thanks for telling us a bit about that journey. For for full disclosure to our listeners, I do know Sarah from organizing circles. So so thank thanks for thanks for telling us about your your journey for for the sake of our listeners. Okay, so you've told us a little bit about the hub and how you're working. What are the gaps in in sort of resourcing that that the hub is trying to fill? What makes the hub different from other action climate action resource centers? Because they're sort of there there's some different models. For instance, Steph and I both actually kind of our day jobs are are kind of climate action resource centers from in, in in a way. Stefan works for kind of like an in-person innovation hub. I work for an existing organization that caters a little bit more to the Engo world. So yeah, what what makes the hub different than some existing spaces? Totally. And I think this this answers a bit your your last question more about why we felt the need for librarians specifically was I think that there can be, yeah, this gap maybe a bit between the Engo world and what's happening like day to day on sort of the grassroots level and that we really wanted to be sort of to fit into that gap of instead of 
maybe being sort of a massive organization that and that this does build power in its own way of like of mobilizing people and building up skills through helping people host day of actions or petitions or these other like sort of action oriented plans and strategic plans that the hub was was positioned or could become this thing that was positioned as as a as listening directly to the grassroots and then building out afterwards and sort of listening to yeah like what are the what like just being really reactive and i guess i keep saying that but like just exceptionally responsive to and and building these relationships of trust directly with lots of groups lots of grassroots groups across the country and so we have really and a really interesting organizing context that's very singular to quebec for example where they have different needs than what's happening in the rest of Canada. And then within the rest of Canada, there's so many different needs as well. So being really sensitive to the differences in these different regions, what their different needs are in terms of organizing history and knowledge and meeting them where they're at and being able to then, with the incredible privilege we have in this space of kind of being between these two worlds, of building out programming that is kind of responsive and really dynamic in these ways that maybe bigger places couldn't move quite as fast in or doesn't have those deeper, those relationships in the same level or that same the kind of relation, I guess. So the librarians, for example, are kind of this new thing in these spaces where they're embedded in the movement, they're listening, they have like these sort of these Rolodexes of relationships with all these folks and are checking in with them and also our trusted people that people can go to and ask. And then we can, you know, figure out, oh, we're getting lots of requests for long these lines. And so we can then from there on my end, build out programming and see how it lands and then continue the sort of dynamic process of listening and then, you know, going back and doing research and building out like workshops and that sort of thing. And then sort of coming back and seeing how it how it lands and then continuing it all over again. Yeah. If if listeners were to go to your website, they would see all the different like webinars and workshops you're hosting in, or yeah. maybe in the recent past and the ones that are coming up. And I think what's what's incredible is that with a relatively small team, you're you're able and maybe it's because your team is small, you're able to be incredibly nimble and reactive. And there's there's a there's so much that you're putting out there in terms mm-hmm. of resourcing for for your members and for the broader movement. It's incredibly impressive. So like kudos to you folks and the the speed at which you're able to operate while still providing like really High quality feels like a funny word to use, but like, but really like high quality, well, well researched and well backed resourcing. Yeah, thank you. And I think exactly there's like this nimbleness to us. There is these these lovely, like incredible relations of trust that we've built over time. And yeah, it's it's been able to serve us really, really well in being really reactive and in these good ways. And also, yeah, we're not we're not prescriptive like we we want a just transition we are here we have these like we have our north star of 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 helping guide these organizers to become to make the left a leaderful and strategic force in this country towards a just transition but outside of that like we are so open to and, and to working with different people on the ground and trying to figure out how we build solidarity together and how we can best bring these skills and this like this enrichment to what has been a very attacked space that of organizing that of unions that of we're not in, we're not in union organizing but this place of like civic engagement that has just been decimated by you know neoliberalism we're trying to bring back this strategy to the left and to climate and to social justice circles in general i love that so much leaderful and strategic it's like yeah. oof that's yeah. a good little it's a good tight little phrase yeah yeah for sure and so i'm curious it doesn't sound like you're a membership organization it sounds like sort of anyone can come in and get support from you. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Cool. 
And so maybe you're going to spend a little bit on, on the type of people who do come to you. You know, what kind of work are you supporting across Canada? Yeah, totally. So we've been supporting in many different ways. So we have our sort of core offerings, our workshops on strategy, structure and anti-oppression, which all together, you know, are things that are just we were hearing again and again in the first year of our operation through all these different types of assessments with groups that they were the core sort of pain points for organizations, for grassroots orgs. So we built out these workshops for that. And then we have the wiki with our articles and compendiums of resources. And then from there, we have this sort of nimble space of being able to react to different questions and things as they come. So we worked with some organizers this past fall to put on some retreats for community care, like how to how to hold each other through this very intense moment of political and climate crisis. So there was these facilitated a facilitated three day retreat that happened in our circles. That was, yeah, an incredible moment of trying to reinvigorate our movement with different practices of care and compassion and, and webs of connection. Sorry, that's vague. Maybe a better example would be putting on movement visioning discussions across the country. So we had many different big cities in Canada where we brought together climate organizers and, and other organizers from other spots, but mainly with climate, to talk about the state of the movement, to be like, let's convene the conveners, let's organize the organizers. And bring them together to have conversations on specific with specific sort of facilitated questions to figure out together in common, like and to have a, all these also these moments of joy and connection at picnics, in bars, in community centers, libraries, to talk about where they're at in their movement, in the movement cycle, where they want to be and how we get there. What are those concrete steps of what needs to happen next and how can we build solidarity and power together? So kind of having these mini, I don't know if your readers or listeners recall, like kind of very tiny, mini like power shifts in a way, like to talk about where we're at and so where and where we're going and, and how we want to get there. So those are really powerful. And I was able to go to several of them. And it was really incredible to see all the energy in the room to be able to and, and also to have them in perks where they were distanced at different parts of the pandemic. So, yeah, to really like sit with people and to have these moments when you can really get stuck not stuck, but really entrenched in these like smaller questions about, you know, next tactic, next strategy, and instead to take a step back together and to collectively take stock and see how we can, you know, move forward together in common. I love, I love the ideas of the visioning sessions. I, I was sort of lucky enough to sit in on like a mini, mini version of one at, at a gathering I was at last summer that just kind of like was a, was a brief overview of the model. And I'm, I try not to reference my day job too much, but it's I've actually been given your facilitation materials for those workshops. And I'm really, really excited. I'm going to execute it with with my own with my own workplace. Yeah. Anyway, and that's though, the point, right. It's supposed to be disseminated and to spark these conversations everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're doing this at the grassroots. But I feel like these are relevant conversations to be happening within sort of like established paid organizer spaces as well, because even more so than grassroots spaces, I think the ANGO movement, ENGO movement is like really plagued by this kind of like, I don't know, lack of creativity. And we feel so stuck and we feel so stagnant that that having these really purposeful conversations meant to generate and galvanize are like so key. Anyway, so something that, that we've sort of touched on a tiny little bit throughout the conversation so far is sort of like this ecosystem of the climate movement within so-called Canada. A few months ago at the hub or of some folks from the hub, we're involved in publishing a really, really great report looking at dynamics between grassroots and and, and more formal like paid organizer spaces or, or ango spaces. In your opinion, what are some of the moves that can be made to help kind of like bridge the gap 
between these two these two factions of of the climate movement. Understanding that this isn't just a dynamic that's a stumbling block for for our movement, it it plagues all progressive spaces. But 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 yeah, would love to hear your thoughts on that if you have any. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's super interesting because this past year, like, I mean, we are we are still in the pandemic. We're in this different iteration of it that is that is this ongoing state of crisis, but it is different than the first two three years of what we've lived through and. It's been really interesting in this moment to to be talking with organizers and seeing this like, yeah, the, seeing this like fracture between those two worlds on like many different levels. So, for example, at least, you know, from my vantage point, which is, you know, not completely like what's the word like it's just my it's my from what I've seen from what I've seen there, like the ENGO world was was like in its way, like we were all rocked by COVID, but there was a transition to work from home. There were these things. There was obviously so much crisis around us that was like untenable, but also there were there were some things that were could, could kind of hold people working in that space. Whereas grassroots organizers, the floor fell out from under them in a, in a, in a totally different way that they haven't fully recuperated from. Whereas the ENGO world's like, in some ways has, like, I'm not trying to minimize, like, ongoing struggles, but um, it was just a totally different kind of fallout for for what happened with COVID. And so that and, like, there's all there are these, like, definitely these these sometimes lack of trust, which we see, which is, like, really interesting for us as a new organization to move into this space and to be, again, like, sort of, I love the Adrian Marie Brown quote of, like, moving at the speed of trust. And that how essential that is to like what we are what we are doing and when in any kind of human relations, but especially in our world of, yeah, there's definitely been people who've been at the grassroots level who've been burned or who've been who've experienced, you know, various levels of mistreatment or or just or just not feeling maybe listened to or feeling a little bit shunted aside or, or different, you know, different experiences that maybe weren't positive. And so feeling, you know, distrustful of systems and institutions for, for good reason. And so for us to come into this space and to really want to center the experiences of organizers and to build out supports for them and resources is, yeah, has a, has its challenges as this sort of in-between space. And so I think what I got out of like reading that report and like sort of the work we do is like this understanding of movement ecology as this incredibly dynamic thing where there's so much that's been done at the grass tops level with lobbying with, you know, with mobilization at, at certain levels, which has, you know, brought us to where we are now, which is not nothing. But that there needs to be this sourcing of the grassroots that needs to be, you know, taking into account this entire sort of the, like a, a bigger sort of more expansive holistic view of, of how movements win, of how progressive change comes into, be, comes into play and how integral and how underfunded and under-resourced the grassroots really are and how that you know, coming at it and realizing how much we can in a non-paternalistic way support the grassroots to help that movement ecology and that that movement towards progressive change happen is something that needs to to be changed and is changing, but is an integral part of, of moving forward. Yeah, thanks so much for your thoughts on that. That was really comprehensive. And I think like going back to the very first point you made, it's true that that the grassroots in a way that that the grass tops really didn't Definitely, like organizations were were reeling in that first year of COVID, but but a recovery has happened there that that you're absolutely right just hasn't happened in, in grassroots spaces by and large, not completely. That's a big general blanket statement. There's still a lot of incredible communities doing a lot of incredible work, but 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 the ways in which people had to pivot to try to work together in different ways, 
the ways in which organizations had to change and pivot in order to to react to the call for mutual aid and the need just to keep people alive and surviving as best they could. And and all of those resources that were going towards those conversations instead of instead of what we would, I don't know, stereotypically think of as quote unquote climate conversations, even though we know they're all the same, they're interconnected. But but yeah, so I I completely agree with you in a lot of ways. The movement is still very much in in recovery. So it's fantastic that the hub exists to try to advocate for the needs of the movement and 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 try to make sure some of those gaps are being filled. And that resourcing is happening because, yeah, we've seen from like the funder class, they're starting to become more responsive to the needs of 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 a grassroots movement. and and along with that comes like a degree of grace and trust and understanding that we need to grant money in different ways than 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 funders have maybe previously been used to. But it's it, none of that would be happening if if the hub wasn't here driving that to a degree, I think. So thanks so much for that explanation. Yeah, for sure. And so talking about that grassroots and and what your members are sort of doing and well, I'm using members as a colloquial term for people who engage with the hub. We're curious about where are you seeing their energy go, I guess? Like what is the grassroots really sort of holding on to or moving towards right now? You now, what's gaining the most traction? And what are the climate sort of solutions that are being advocated for by by folks that are on the ground that you're interacting with? Yeah, so uh, things are definitely shifting, I think, in this in really exciting ways. And as, as you said, like, Lauren, there's definitely there was this huge pivot to mutual aid to very like hyper local community support that was exceptionally necessary and still necessary in so many ways. But I think that there is this sort of trying to find and build more capacity for continuing that or figuring out how that can continue as well as getting into strategic campaigns around other policies. So we're seeing, for example, and then there's like when there's really intense attacks that are very overt against the environment and against people, such as the attacks by Doug Ford on the Greenbelt, there was a huge mobilization of folks and especially rural folks in Ontario to support, you know, fighting back against these changes and trying to activate other people to fight back as well. So there are these ways in which this powerful reactions to things that are going and moving in you know, the wrong direction are happening on the ground. So we have the Save the Green Belt movement, which is continuing. And then we're also seeing in other climate justice groups across the country a need for sourcing the movement from a knowledge perspective. So we've got some free schools moving, working out of the BC, for example, doing workshops and, and day-long workshops on, on skilling up the grassroots with anti-O structure, but then also other community offerings on, you know, NVDA training and then these sorts of things that we couldn't do in person for a really long time, but that like, you know, require trust and and also would, and they work really well in person and building community and also, you know, finding new people and recruiting new people and like these ways of like this important, the importance of the one-on-one, the face-to-face, like in, in building these communities, right? So we're having this like sourcing of the movement at a knowledge base and then also, yeah, kind of local campaigns like we're seeing, you know, realizing like the the intersections of of climate and transit, of climate and and other issues at the local level, and how transit can be a way into working on climate policy and and pushing forward climate solutions. As you know, buildings and transportation are the biggest emitters of carbon. Um, so and so these sorts of ways of also like looking at municipal actions that can be taken strategically and building up from there as well. So like that's really exciting. Two, And then finally, yeah, this resurgence of Indigenous land defense as well across so-called Canada is like an integral part of this, too. 
So we have decolonial solidarity, which has continued to really build across the country and have a really impressive internal system of like coaching and building leaders that we like have worked on with them as well. And so this idea of like leaderfulness and of creating organizers who are empowered with knowledge, who then empower others and, you know, teaching, you know, all of these important skills and this just like strategy rich stuff that like I was talking about before is a really big part of, of those allies working in, in allegiance and in solidarity with land defenders and then land defenders themselves out of Ferry Creek and elsewhere fighting for self-determination, which is an ongoing struggle. And now we're seeing out of Tanisatake as well and, and so many other communities who are fighting environmental racism and injustice, which continues, unfortunately, in all these horrible, inhuman and discriminatory ways, but that there's this incredible resurgence and this centering of them in their fights and this desire to support and come together to support these land defenders. So that's a huge thing as well. That's we're seeing a lot more energy and, and restructuring behind, which is really, really incredible to see. I'm going to try really hard not to sound like too flippant or glib here, but like it's like we've we've had this big conversation about like the needs of the movement and the way the movement had its feet knocked out from under it. And we're in some ways, it almost feels like we're a bit of a movement in recovery and there's so much change that needs to happen and, and sort of scaling up of, of resourcing and capacity. But but like hearing you now, like there's so much happening all the time that like if you stop and think for a minute about all the incredible work that's happening in communities and neighborhoods and cities all across so-called Canada, it's like for a brief moment, you're like, oh, there is hope. There is a lot of good stuff happening. Maybe we'll be OK. Oh, yes. mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, no, totally. There's so many courageous people doing this work and it is it's amazing. And at it can often be at, at great you know cost, like to Indigenous land defenders, especially. And then also, you know, in all these much smaller ways for others as well. And, and but there are people doing this work and continuing and being and trying to find the most strategic, effective ways to move forward, which is incredible. And I'm, I'm so privileged to support them. So we do have to start to wrap up this conversation. We have one last question for you, which is sort of like, generally speaking, what's what's next for the hub? You've done so much in such a short period of time. You're what you, you identified yourself as being or the organization as being like barely three years old. Yeah, we're moving into our fourth year, just celebrated our third birthday. So yeah, moving into fourth. I mean, that's that's incredible. So like you've grown so quickly and you've done so much in such a short period of time. So like what are what are kind of the big dreams and 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 what's next for the hub? And for folks who are listening, whether or not they're they're currently involved in grassroots organizing, how can they tap into to what the hub is offering? How can they help support potentially as well? Yeah, totally. So yeah, what's next? So what's exciting is that, yeah, our team is growing. We're bringing on another librarian soon, which is really, really exciting to also act to sort of, again, take off some more of that kind of frontline liaising from the two first librarians who will kind of be doing more resource generation in the background. And then we'll have an activist resource person who will be directly dealing with with groups and, and their needs and then sort of figuring out who on the team can best is best positioned to support, which is super exciting. And then, yeah, for myself, like, for, well, for the, the Francophone side of the hub, which is just coming out of this incredible, just like, there's, there's, you know, there's so much opportunity there, but they're already working with this incredible base of, of organizers and organizer knowledge in our particular context. And our continuing sort of their, what we started several months ago is, well, some projects of, of going from, from town to town, from sit, not as much cities, but outside of the big cities of Montreal and Quebec City. And 
finding groups there, making connections with them and and giving workshops to them in person and being there on the ground to have kind of these movement visioning in a way things and figuring out conversations about where they're at, what they're looking what they're looking for support with and and directly help sort of rural and remote communities in in Quebec sort of build up their their organizing acumen. And so we really want to bring that for in my role as Anglophone coordinator, bring some of that into what I'm doing. We're realizing that we're having a lot of success with our workshops and our resources and, and the wiki, but also that what the movement seems to be asking for now, what we're hearing again and again, is kind of more tailored, direct coaching. And so that's going to be what my position moves and becomes more is, and then also other members on the team as well, of, of being able to deliver more coaching directly to groups and their specific needs. So not necessarily coming to them with, here's how you build a really great structure and a really great campaign strategy. It's like, okay, what is your campaign strategy and how can I help you escalate? How can we do? What are you, you know, going through these sort of steps and like sort of collaborating more specifically on on what their specific issues are within certain scenarios and certain sort of experiences. So trying to go even deeper than these sort of what we've had as like successful mass trainings, but wanting to, as we sort of say, build deeper while building wider. So continuing to build out that base, but finding more ways to really bring this deep like organizing knowledge into the movement in new sort of coaching ways. That's incredible. I'm so excited to see that. Yeah, I'm really excited about it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Really vital work you're doing. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Sarah. This was uh, such a fun thank conversation. You. Thank you for having me. And yeah, to get more involved, we have our website, www.lahub.ca. We were started in Montreal and in Quebec, so we have a French name. And yeah, you can come out to our workshops. All the information is on our website, as well as the Climate Justice Organizing Hub or Lahub on Instagram and Facebook. Amazing. Well, thanks so much. This has been Sarah Adams, the Anglophone Coordinator of La Hub. Went for it again this time, also known as The Hub. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. 